Can we get this one? Okay, okay, it seems good. Okay, welcome to the sixth annual Texas Tribune Festival. I'm Jonathan Silver, I'm a criminal justice reporter with the Texas Tribune. And um, this is our race and law enforcement uh, panel discussion. And uh, this is part of our diversity and law enforcement track. And uh, if I'm correct, the remaining uh, talks are going to be in this track, are going to be in this room. And just to go over those with y'all, the next one after this is immigration in the cities. And then following that is, is the death penalty working? And then after that is Texas versus the feds. After that is Supreme Court confidential. And then we finish it off with voting rights and wrongs. So I think that'll be a very uh, interesting discussion throughout the day, especially on that track. Um, and I want to introduce y'all to our panelists here. We have Mark Levin. I'm going to go just down the down the road here. Uh, Mark Levin is the director director of the Center for Effective Justice and Right on Crime at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. We have Shakira Humphrey. She's our she's a uh, policy director with the Texas Criminal Justice Coalition. We have. <coughs> Representative James White, um, and from Pillister. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> and we have, Chief, we have Chief Art Acevedo with the Austin Police Department, and we have Senator Royce West from Dallas. So I want to also just go over, this is a, we're a little bit late, but this is a 60-minute conversation, and the last 15 to 20 minutes, we'll open it up to questions. I'm sure you all have lots of questions. Um, so what I want to first, so before that, I'm just going to kind of guide and start the conversation. Uh, you know, coming to this panel, coming to, the, coming to, to today, this festival, uh, I was thinking last week one of the top things that I was going to talk about would be Sandra Bland or you know other issues that we've heard about in police shootings and you know throughout the country we had situations in Minnesota, Baton Rouge, Baltimore, we have famous cases out of Florida but you know I don't think anyone expected to have two fresh examples um, just this week and late last week so I want to start off with uh, I'll start with you, Senator West. Um, how do we get to this point? What's, what's the situation? Can you help frame the issue? What, the, what is the problem um, as it relates to race and law enforcement? Well, uh, I think that, first of all, thank you for um, the Texas Trib for putting this on, and it continues to grow over and over each and every year. Uh, I think that, let me give you this perspective. This is not a new problem. It's an old problem. It has been happening for years. The problem has been an issue of transparency. And what you are now seeing is what people have been complaining about for years. But it got down to a credibility issue. Uh, the issue ended up being the police officer's credibility against uh, a witness's credibility or the, someone related to the victim. And so when you got down to that and with no independent uh, any other evidence, it always, the, the presumption always went in favor of the police officer, the law enforcement official. Uh, you now have the advent, needless to say, of body cameras, dash cameras, uh, a lot of uh, iPhones and all, all the cameras and stuff. So you, you're beginning to see uh, more transparency, at least that are putting a lot of these shootings in question. And the citizenry, be they black, white, brown, purple, or pink, are, are asking for more accountability. So it's not a new problem, it's an old problem. It's a problem that many of us have grappled with for a long time. That's why back in 2001, probably before many of you were born, no, you, you were born, <laughs> um, I put in place a, a, in the state of Texas a dash camera program where we had dash cameras in uh, police cars, dash camera programs out the state of Texas, and policies concerning retention, et cetera, et cetera. And then this past legislative session, I put in place legislation for a body camera program and got about $10 million associated with that in order to uh, provide some additional dollars for local law enforcement. And so it's not a new problem. 
It's an old problem, but we have more transparency associated with it. I think, I think that's interesting that you said that, that this has been a problem. My next question was going to be, is it in fact a problem? Because we have. Yes, we, it is a problem. <laughs> we, have, we have a, you know, we have, I would say, I would argue a significant portion of the population who won't even acknowledge that there's a problem. And I want to go to the policy folks here. Can you all talk about uh, how do you, first of all, get to the point of saying this is a problem? How do you go beyond that and you know, enact some kind of action? I think uh, relying on data collection is, I think, absolutely with passing the, um, Senator West passing the bill back in 2001, um, that allows us now to look at the data and we know that um, when it comes to searches, st statistically, African Americans are searched more often um, than white people. And I think when the data plays out, I think that answers that question. Well, I mean, and I think that uh, there's, when you look at it, uh, regardless of what your politics are, you have to recognize public trust in law enforcement is absolutely critical. Um, people aren't going to report crimes if they don't trust law enforcement. In Ferguson, we saw there were an average of three warrants per household. I mean, one woman had a warrant for an overgrown lawn. Most of them are traffic warrants and misdemeanor warrants. A lot of them are things that shouldn't even be crimes to begin with. Um, but if everyone's worried about being arrested for some outstanding warrant, what's the chance they're going to report serious crimes and really help uh, in solving crimes? Because police can only be in certain places. They need the eyes and ears of the whole community. Um, so we have a major task, I think, of uh, rebuilding trust uh, between the police and law enforcement, I mean, between police and communities. Um, I think there's some really great programs. If you look, for example, at the LEAD program in Seattle, which is diverting people with low-level drug possession uh, to a caseworker and to treatment and not getting arrested, you're minimizing the contact and you're also addressing the underlying issues. Um, so I think there's um, uh, a huge opportunity to both, you know, uh, really focus on the core public safety mission and addressing violent and property crimes in communities, um, but also, you know, kind of get rid of this metaphor of the thin blue line and really bridge the gap between the police and the community. And uh, thank you for that, uh, Representative and uh, Chief. Uh, I want to to come at it from lawmaker, law enforcement perspective. What, what is, what's going on there with this, uh, what people call an overrepresentation? What is, what's contributing to that and how is that being addressed? Thank you for your question and uh, thank you for having me again. And I'm just extremely proud to represent the five of the greatest counties in Texas. Out Dallas of, County. Out in East Texas. Okay. <laughs> out in East Texas. That's east of 59. Um, I think Shakira and Mark, the key thing is if you look at the data, the data will lead you in the right direction. And, you know, we've got to really just true up on some stuff, okay? Because we do have a problem, and we're not going to solve the problem until we really focus on what needs to be focused. Now, uh, I've just been reading this over the last few weeks. Uh, Harvard, um, I didn't go to Harvard. I went to Prairie View, but some great people go to Harvard. Some great people graduate from Harvard. And um, here I am. I'm looking at Dr. Fryer. Uh, seems to be a pretty nice fellow to me, and he has a PhD in e economics, and he had a pretty robust and sophisticated piece of um, uh, research on, on, on some of the issues we're looking at here, principally dealing with racial bias and police shootings. And this is what he says. Now, I know some people will disagree with it because of what they're seeing on TV, but you have to let the data lead you. Now, here it says here. On the most extreme use of force, that has to be a shooting, officer-involved shootings, we find no racial differences in either the raw data or when contextual factors are taken into account. Now, if you don't agree with that, don't, don't put it, don't, you know, don't take it out on me. Go to Harvard and talk to this Dr. Fryer guy. But, as Shakira says, on non-lethal use of forces, Blacks and Hispanics are more than 50% more likely to experience some form of force in interaction with the police. Now, that leads us to where we need to go because unfortunately I think our police, since they are usually like the Marines of the criminal justice system, they get the brunt of it because they're the first on the scene. I think 
what's happened is it's these laws. Law enforcement, meaning they're enforcing the laws that Senator West and I are, and our other legislative colleagues have passed. And we've got to look at some of these stupid laws and in the, in the situation they put law enforcement in and to enforcing them. So I think, Jonathan, it, it really starts at uh, looking at some of this classy misdemeanor stuff where uh, people get these arrest warrants and they're rounded up and put in jail, a, 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 a huge um, uh, waste of resources. And what it does, it de degra degrades their trust and efficacy in the criminal justice system, and then our law enforcement are standing there uh, having to take the brunt of it. So uh, I like to, I want to, as we go through this discussion, I want to focus on a lot of these laws. Let's put it, let's put the blame where it needs to be on the laws and put the law enforcement in these situations. Chief, let me just say something. Now, I'm from the University of Texas at Arlington. And um, there was a report done by the Washington Post and published April the 7th, 2016. Um, this is what it says. In 2015, the Post documented 990 fatal shootings by police, 93 of which involved people who were unarmed. Black men accounted for about 40% of the unarmed people fatally shot by police and when adjusted by population were seven times as likely as unarmed white men to die from police gunfire. The only thing that was significant in predicting whether someone shot and killed by police was unarmed was whether or not they were black, said Justin Nick, a criminal justice researcher at the University of Louisville and one of the report's authors. Crime variables did not matter in terms of predicting whether the person killed was unarmed. Black individuals shot and killed by police were less likely to have uh, been t attacking police officers than the white individuals fatally shot, the study found. See, come on, man. Um, hey, let me, let me just start off by saying thanks for having this, this, uh, this discussion and thank you all for your interest. I think it's a very important time in our, in our history but the, the, the problem with this study, for, for from Harvard, from my perspective, is not whether it's a disproportional uh, number of uh, shootings. It's we need to look at the circumstances under the shootings, that occur, how they occurred, and how many of those shootings involving people of color were bad or questionable shootings. So it's not a matter of the totality of the shootings that, that we need to look at. It's because either a shooting is justified or it's not. And, and so my question that I think he needs to ask, <coughs> that we all need to ask, is out of all the shootings involving all races, what is there a disproportionality of shootings that occur where the circumstances that led up to the shooting um, were, were, were not appropriate? From my perspective, there's two things I want to put out real quickly. Number one, policing is not broken. I promise you, I've been a cop for over 30 years. Police officers today are better trained, better equipped, better prepared, and more educated than ever before. The facts still remain that most police officers will serve 25 to 30 years, they'll never shoot at anybody, they'll never shoot anybody, they'll never kill anybody, and they'll never seriously injure anybody. But there is a crisis in policing, and that crisis is a crisis in leadership. If you look around the country, we have too many police chiefs, and some of them may, may point the finger at me, but I'll, I'll, I will put my record up to anybody, that still tolerate mediocrity. You know, when you have one department where two women are shot, 100 rounds, two women are shot, 100 rounds are shot towards them. They both get struck by gunfire. Luckily, they live. And a year later, a police chief says, well, and rightfully so, the Constitution does not let us, allow us to shoot people delivering the paper. Well, it's out of policy, yeah, you think? But then, uh, and I predicted this here with our local activists. I predicted, life's about points of reference. You cannot appreciate excellence. Uh, that might be in front of you if you haven't experienced mediocrity. So keep an eye on that case. And I predicted not only will nobody be fired, no one will be disciplined. A year later, I was like the prophet, you know, Moses or somebody. Exactly what I predicted. Not one person got fired. I went back to my actives and I said, now let me ask you, what would happen in Austin, Texas, to my police officers, if we shot 100 rounds at two women delivering the paper? 
And I can't control the DA's office. I can't control the grand jury, but I can control what my actions are. And without exception, said you'd be fired. The other thing I think that we need transparency in the, uh, the grand jury process. Because I can tell you that when we hide things and we're behind closed doors as it relates to the most, I think, critical thing we can do, which is to try to take somebody's life or take somebody's life, it does not breed trust. We need to have a process where it is an open hearing. You could use the grand jury process, but when it comes to officer-involved shootings, I believe it needs to be a public process where everybody can see, hear, look at body language, look at whether the questions are tough or they're softballs. And if we did that, I think we'd go a long way in building trust. Thank you for that. Yep. Uh, um, go ahead, go ahead. No, I, I agree with that. And one of the issues that's come up is also these uh, union agreements. Some of them make it very difficult to discipline officers in different departments. In fact, they say you can't even question an officer for 10 days who has uh, committed an officer-involved shooting and so forth. So I think we need to look very seriously at that as well. Um, but uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I think training is critical in terms of de-escalation techniques and so forth. And um, you know, I certainly appreciate your leadership here in Austin. Thank so you. thank you. Jonathan, let me just add one yeah, other ahead. thing before I add another thing. Uh, <laughs> in terms of transparency, again, this is Washington Post, September 2015. Okay, so far this year, there's been about 770 shootings, police shootings. It's on pace to be about the same as it was last year. But this is real interesting. There have already been at least twice as many police shootings captured on dash cameras. 14, I mean 30 so far this year as, uh, as uh, I suppose last year was about 14. And the 90 shootings recorded by body cameras this year already exceeds the 71 shootings in all of last year. The point is this, we need to put more light on the issue. I, when, when I got ready to do the dash camera bill, I was called everything by law enforcement, by law enforcement, other than a child of God, okay? I'm serious. I mean, they were, they were, there was a lot of pushback on the issue. Now, officers won't leave the station without a dash camera or a body camera. Because they're doing the right thing most of the time. Because they're doing the right thing most of the time, mm -hmm. okay? And so we need to make certain there's more transparency. So fact finders, be they the grand jury, or someone looking independently at the shootings will have as much evidence as possible to make an accurate determination in terms of what has occurred. And one of the things for negotiations that I think we should look at is maybe negotiating with labor, uh, or you can do it a state uh, legislature, where as it relates to the use of deadly force, that maybe we do it in a transparent way. We'll find a way to do it uh, uh, where people can see what's going on. Yep. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I, just from a constitutional perspective, I mean, when you know the grand jury has been around for centuries, and the grand jury. Uh, comes from this English tradition that, you know, before you're indicted, um, there's the idea that uh, the indictment or the probable indictment is vetted before uh, your, you know, your, your, you know, your reputation and all that is tarnished. So, yes, we need more transparency. I, I think the work that Senator West continues to do with cameras and whatnot provides that type of transparency. Maybe the release of this data in a timely and um, smart way, uh, not holding on to it and saying, you know, we're looking at it and we don't see anything. Uh, that's probably not the thing to do with the people in um, North Carolina. But, um, you know, to, you know, exempt a certain group of individuals, you know, out of the grand jury system like that, um, from a constitutional perspective, I think we get into some, some scenarios that we want to get into. I'm yeah. also hoping that the Texas uh, Commission on Law Enforcement will move away from the use of force continuum and possibly take up de-escalation as a model, um, much like they did in Dallas with Chief Brown, and I think the results there prove that that's the right thing to do. Jonathan, let me say something else. How many of you have driver's license in here? Driver's license. Okay. And, you know, when we were coming through, we had a driver's license manual. When we were coming through, we had a driver's license manual. And I think that the instructions now are probably all on the computer, right? 
Well, anyway. Online, yes, sir. Online. Yeah, uh, online. And so this is what I propose. When you begin to deal with a lot of uh, traffic stops and then you have some of the incidents that have occurred, I think that we frankly need to revise the traffic manual, the driver's license manual, to do the following. What are the expectations of the citizen and the police officer, law enforcement officer, doing a traffic stop? Does anyone know? Have you ever heard of 10-2? How many of you heard of 10-2? Okay. How many have not heard of 10-2? See, that's a problem. What do you do if you're on a dark road and you see flashing lights behind you? What do you do? Pull over. No, no. Are you on a dark road? You're on a dark road. So is that evading arrest? Kind of depends, right? Yep. Okay. The point of making is this, and the point of making is this. I have convened a task force with DPS and different groups and asked them to look at what is the expectation? What is the expectation when a police officer stops you on a traffic? What do you do? Okay? What should be the expectation? And it, and it should be uniform throughout the entire state of Texas. Frankly, it should be uniform throughout the entire United States. And the reality is this. It, whatever we come up with doing this task force, which I'll have in about two or three weeks, we need to make certain we take it and put it in our schools also. It should be embedded in our teaks, in our schools, and we should also take it and put it in our law enforcement academy. And, and for I, everyone I've got to react. I can, can I react that real yeah, quickly? Yeah, yeah. Because we're doing that with our Austin Police Association, the union, the police department, and young activists to put it together for young people, right? But I think that's part of teaching exactly. uh, people. And the media got a hold of it, the good old media that likes to just do this, right? Because the more that we divide, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. We, we all know that. We're being played to a certain extent. All of our emotions got a hold of it last week, and they wanted to do a story that we are trying to blame the victim. No, we're trying, to, we're trying to create circumstances and opportunities to not have another victim. Because all they care about sometimes is stirring it up, but we actually care. And, and I want to thank you, uh, Senator, because for your leadership. Because the Austin Police Department is part of the staff. Well, well, and see, in the, the Sandra Bland case, that, it's also expectations about courtesy and, and the way the officer behaves. Because that officer said, I'm going to light you up over and over yeah. again. And, you know, uh, I think uh, we need to make sure the right type of people, I mean, not everyone is cut out in terms of their personality to be an officer. And there's some research, academic research, it shows uh, the most predictive thing about whether an officer will commit an officer-involved shooting or inappropriate use of force is a certain macho complex, um, you know, and there are actually ways to measure that. Um, but you don't want somebody who feels easily threatened or has kind of a, uh, a temper that easily flies off the handle. They could be great in some other careers, but not as a policeman. But, but I want to challenge these two yeah. gentlemen right now. Uh, the legislative session's coming up, and I'm going to put something <clears throat> on your plate, and labor doesn't like this, I don't think. But we, we psych officers before they get on the job. You, you, you do psychological training. This profession, you have a lot of psychological trauma just like everybody in this audience through life. We, we continue to build tra uh, psychological trauma. I'm, a, I'm convinced that if we re-psyched officers every three to five years, not to be punitive, but to be able to uh, identify when that baggage, when that trauma is starting to accumulate and to be able to intervene, I'm convinced we'll save lives, we'll save careers, we'll save marriages, we'll see people uh, more, less involved in uh, 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 abuse, abusing drugs and alcohol. And if I'm labor, they should be leading the charge because, I, because on balance, it's going to be an absolute win. And some people say, well, you know, the funding. If you authorize, because right now I can only do it on what's called a fitness for duty, which means I have to have cause. Well, at that point, I may be too late. I've already, I've already failed that officer. I've already failed that family. and Potentially, we might fail the community. So I'm putting that out there to you because I'm coming around talking this, this session, and I hope that we will do that uh, to, to, to help create a healthier mindsets and healthier cultures in policing. I'll be interested in looking at that. Great. Mm -hmm. Thank y'all. Um, I want to go to talk about kind of an urban policing community situation. I guess that counts me. <laughs> <laughs> and on a, so, you, 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 you're, you're a resident part-time every couple of years now. Okay. <laughs> so I want to talk Austin and Dallas. And uh, whether like I'm here at a festival or, or at the store or at a bar or anything, I tell someone that I'm a criminal justice reporter. And if they're local, They'll bring up uh, 
you know, there are a few cases. They'll talk about the, the school teacher that was arrested here. Ms. Brian King, yes. Uh, David no, Joseph, yeah. um, or also the uh, uh, the bank robbery incident. The, uh, Ms. Larry, Larry Jackson, Jr. Yes. And I know all my and uh, I wonder whenever you have, you know, whenever we have these kinds of problems or these kinds of circumstances or something that's not, you know, out of the ordinary, what do you do to address those problems after they come up? Before you answer, um, you know, that, that, that comes to a community and policing kind of issue, like how the community, particularly uh, the black community in Austin, how they kind of react to that and that, the, the nature and the, uh, the status of that relationship right now. So I want you to think about that, but also, uh, you know, in Dallas, with our with the shooting at the uh, at the protest, that kind of a lot of people I've talked to have said that that kind of changed the dynamic or the conversation because suddenly you had a new target that was uh, targeted, um, where you had whites and police officers who were targeted in that situation. And I think a lot of people thought that that complicated the conversation of race and law enforcement. So I wonder if y'all can talk about community relations from those perspectives. You know, um, obviously it, it was a tragedy and uh, all America grieved because of what occurred in Dallas. Uh, I was at the protests, okay? I was down there and there was a peaceful protest and I happened to just walk over to Channel 4, which is an affiliate that's gonna do some commentators, as soon as I walked in that door, all hell broke loose in downtown Dallas. Let me make sure you understand and appreciate, this wasn't about Dallas, it was about law enforcement in general. And mental health on top and of mental, that. And, and, and the other part was mental health, with a veteran coming back from, coming back that had mental health issues that was identified. Uh, so it's a two-parter. Um, now, needless to say, that person, um, who committed that atrocity uh, had mental health issues, but for some reason it was focused in many instances on law enforcement, as was Baton Rouge also. So it tells you that people are getting fed up with what's going on in America as it relates to this particular issue, and that we need to take steps in order to deal with the issues, the trust issue, but more importantly, if you look at one of the common denominators between the two of those shooters, both of them, I believe, had mental health issues. And so we've got to address mental health concerns in this country, especially when you begin to look at the issue that most of uh, mental health people, persons, we find them in our jails, mm -hmm. and we don't have adequate resources in order to deal with them in terms of the community response. What? We, oh, sorry, Senator. I'm sorry, in terms of in Dallas, if you looked at Dallas and, and you kind of determined whether or not it was about Dallas, about law enforcement, you would see that in Dallas, because of the pol community policing initiative in Dallas, that the number of complaints against police officers, excessive use of force complaints, went down significantly because of the advent of the body cameras and some of the policies that were put in place by the police department. Well, I, I, first of all, we have to understand something. The human condition is an imperfect condition. I mean, if you're a person of faith, Depends on who, what faith you have. There's a reason that uh, my, my my savior uh, was you know gave up his life, and we've made it well worth his uh, efforts throughout history. So you know you're going to have bad outcomes. No matter how hard we try, we will never have perfection. It is just not going to happen. Having said that, you got to continue to seek perfection. So you better have a relationship as a police department, as a police chief, as a police leader. As uh, I consider myself a community leader that happens to be the police chief not the police chief that's community, does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm. So when we have these, these bad situations that we know are gonna happen, you know, it's, it's sooner or later it's gonna happen, like David Joseph, you know, a 17 year old African American a young man, I'm not gonna call him a, a, a boy or a kid, because at 17, you know, you are at the prime of your life in terms of your physical uh, condition and you can actually serve in the military. Broad daylight, totally naked, low crime neighborhood, my officer shows up and kind of engages him within, and it's online, you can all find it. And sadly, uh, this young man charges, just runs at the officer full speed. Pretty freaky thing to have a totally naked guy coming right at you. Well, my officer came out with his gun in his hand. Now, when you come out with your firearm in your hand for a totally naked, unarmed guy, you're probably starting to limit 
uh, your options, okay? So he ends up shooting and killing uh, Mr. Joseph. Uh, and if you think about the shootings we've seen recently and ours, which one, if you think about the, the facts in the case, which one's the most uh, egregious? A naked kid, unarmed, not a scratch on my officer, or some of the ones we've seen recently? I think ours is one of the worst. That didn't really go viral. You didn't see everything go to, to, to uh, real bad circumstances because we build emotional capital with our community. We build trust through transparency and engagement. And with that uh, officer, I fired him. You know, the union, uh, you know, hey, the guy could have been on PCP, everything else. Well, I'm sorry. But if you, and it breaks my heart because uh, uh, the officer involved is a great young man. He's not a, he's African American as well, by the way. He's a great young man. I know his heart. But if you're that scared, that your first reaction when somebody runs at you totally naked and unarmed is to shoot and kill them, I'm sorry, you don't need to be a cop. It's very simple for me. So I controlled what I can control, which is the, the administrative piece. We present it to the grand jury. They're gonna do what they're gonna do. But the problem again is not, and some of my officers got upset, so here's leadership. I spent the month of March going to 90 minute roll calls with every single member of our patrol. Uh, and I told them, I don't care if you do a vote of no confidence, which unions love to do. I don't care what you guys do. As long as I'm the chief of police in Austin, Texas, you don't get to shoot and kill a young man like it's a rabid dog running at you when God gave you fist, gave you a PR-24, gave you, gave you a pepper spray, gave you a taser, gave you all these other things. By the way, if you just take your time, what, there was no exigent circumstance to engage. Wait for your backup. And as long as I'm chief, I'll fire the next guy. And I'm not trying to be uh, cold-hearted about it, but that's the same officer that if I keep him, a year from now, he's looking at a, he, 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 we're, we're looking for an armed suspect in a, in, a, in a dark alley somewhere, and here comes an officer from another end, and guess who he's going to shoot? One of his own partners. Not everybody is meant to be a police officer, and when, we, and when it manifests itself in behavior, we have to take action. I think that's the biggest challenge we have. It's not the cops. It's people that are wearing stars and bars, that are more focused on keeping their job than doing their job. Can you talk about... <laughs> you know, this is a, an issue we run into on the, in the media. Whenever we want to talk to a, a law enforcement, get a law enforcement perspective, sometimes we often, either we'll call you, we'll call the police association, or we'll call CLEAT, or some other union. Can you talk about that dynamic because y'all are not one and the same? Can you talk about that? For me? Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, I, I, I'm very supportive of labor. I really believe that you don't want to politicize a police department and you want officers to have, uh, you want them to have due process, you want them to have great representation. But at the end of the day, the union, whether it's TMPA or CLEAT or APA or DPA, they're the tail, the police department is the dog, and the tail doesn't get to wag the dog. That's, that's, that's first and foremost. We try to work with our, our unions. I think it's important uh, to, to have them because you gotta think back to the day before police officers had rights, before we had, before they had contracts, before they had protections like under 47.3, where you know, if, you, if you were living in the wrong town, uh, you know, uh, the mayor might tell the cops, hey, go, and you're the wrong color or whatever, go, go get that guy and do this. So we, it's, but it's about balance, right? It's about balance. And so um, uh, I think it's an important relationship uh, but we can't just give away, I understand management rights. <laughs> and if it's not in the contract, it ain't the law, a lot of it falls under management rights and I exercise management rights and we have to balance the relationship. You have all these stakeholders, right? Especially as a police chief, you have the community, you have your, your, your police officers, you have your union, you have the, the media, which is a, another topic altogether. Uh, and you have to lead in a manner that respects uh, and balances everything, but here's what, I think sometimes unions forget. We work for the people that we serve and it's the people out there on the streets. We work for them. And the relationship between the police department and the people, the healthier it is, the safer it is for the cops. The better benefits they're gonna get, the better pay they're gonna get, the better equipment they're gonna get, the more effective they're gonna be. So I always tell my cops, guess what? The court of public opinion matters. 
It matters to everything you do. You'll get a better shake when you go in front of a grand jury when you use force because you built that trust. And so we constantly have to, again, respect. And there's some union guys in here from uh, TMPA, so I recognize them. Hi, TMPA. Uh, That's one of the other states. Uh, yeah, I know you're looking over there. Uh, I keep telling them. But you know what's really interesting? After the Breon Keene thing, what we did, you talk about community relations. I brought in clergy, I brought in our young activists after the free, uh, Joseph Freeman shooting. I don't know if you guys watch this. We have been working with Black Lives Matter for three years, ever since the uh, Larry Jackson Jr. shooting, that terrible shooting uh, after that foot pursuit uh, involving one of our detectives. We've been working quietly, I don't care about what the media thinks, Black Lives Matter, Measure Austin, think about this, young activists in Austin, Texas are putting together performance measures, not based on what's important to the police department, but guess where those performance measures are coming from? From the community itself. I think that is so huge that we should be measuring what's important to the people we serve. We brought uh, them in. Uh, we brought in the Austin Justice Coalition. We've been working so closely with so after Breon King, we brought him the, into the, this room. Uh, you all know Breon King? Who, anybody, everybody remember that is? That young school teacher that we pulled out in about uh, 40 seconds. And, and it was so cool because what happened is we brought in the union, and they didn't even know what meeting they were walking into. But if you look at where everybody started in that three-hour meeting and where we ended, it was a beautiful journey. And I think that I've come up with this acronym that I hope everybody remembers, that it's a mutual responsibility between the police and the community. But, it, it, but in this current environment, it's a responsibility between people of different faith, people of different religion, because, you know, we're just a, a, a snapshot of society. Society is broken right now. And it's just policing. Trust me, there's some issues. If we, uh, but for police, it's not just uh, mutual responsibility, it is a duty. We have to be transparent with one another, all of us, including with our neighbors, our friends. We have to be respectful of one another, and respect starts with self-respect. A lot of people don't respect themselves, and they want somebody else to respect them. We have to constantly engage one another, and then we have to hold ourselves accountable. One of the things that I can't, that, that, that really irritate me sometimes is, hey, the police shot a person that was unarmed. You know, if you start that conversation like that, everybody immediately assumes that it's a bad shooting. No, it's not where the person's unarmed because there's always a gun in play. Whose gun is always in play when you're in a violent encounter on the streets? Anybody? The officer's gun. The officer's gun. In the last 10 years, 50 American police officers were killed last time we uh, looked into this data with their own firearm. That doesn't include the ones that were shot with their own firearms and the ones that uh, the, the suspect just walked away. So it's not a matter where the suspect was uh, armed or not. It's a matter of what are the circumstances. And so the only thing that I will throw out to here uh, is this. We all need to just take a step back, but be transparent, respectful, engage, accountable. And sometimes we as community members have to understand that not everybody's a good guy out there. And then we did all that stuff, we're going to build trust. And that's the T, the last T in, in treat. So, that's right. uh, and I think that's what we're doing here today is putting all our cards on the table. Yeah, and, I, and I'll mention, by the way, we worked very closely with the Sheriff's Association and CLEAT back in 2007. We passed a law that said uh, officers could give citations for certain things, including a small amounts of marijuana, instead of taking someone to jail. And again, that goes back to minimizing contact with the system that's unnecessary. Um, sheriffs would love to be able to spend uh, more of their <coughs> money on patrols rather than uh, having mentally ill people in jail like Sandra Bland, who didn't even need to go to jail to begin with. Um, and so um, I think there's tremendous opportunity there to just divert people uh, from jails. And then once for those people that are in jails, we certainly need to, and the Sandra Bland Act, I think, will be on the table next session, but make sure there's better training of sheriff's deputies when it comes to mental illness um, and uh, really uh, identify people who really should be in a mental facility rather than in the jail. And Jonathan, uh, let, me, let me give the chief some support here. Uh, we need all these law enforcement organizations um, on the train helping us out. And uh, I love all of them, CLEAT, TMPA, and you mentioned some other applicants. You know, I, I go back to last session, and one of our great members had a piece of legislation, I think, out of Dallas County, um, uh, Helen Giddings, Representative Giddings, uh, to provide our law enforcement officers that desire to work in the school, providing security in the school, to get some little training on dealing with kids, uh, being around so many kids. And, you know, some of our law enforcement organizations push back on that. And, and usually the response I get, we already get training on that. Well, 
they don't know I did this, but I went and looked at the basic training for law enforcement, and I saw no training <laughs> on law enforcement in schools. Obviously, they get some training dealing with juveniles, but not in schools. And we put this out here, too, because I think this is going to come back. But that same particular bill, there was a provision on that block of instruction or training involving some type of cultural, ethnic sens sensitivity. And that piece was taken out because passing that bill, there would be an implication that we think our officers are not racially sensitive now or racist. That is a very short-sighted and minimalist view. And it is embarrassing that if that's what happened, that's the narrative I got, to get that bill passed. So hopefully that bill will come back and we'll strengthen that. Why not? As a soldier, before I was deployed to Iraq, they sat me down and talked about dealing with people in Iraq. So we need our police organizations, and I'm all for them. Thank you for your support and the campaigns and all of that. But we need you also during the session being constructive and not just saying no and saying we already get that training because a lot of times you haven't got the training. But, but you know what? You brought something up that, uh, that, that, that really, you know, we're paying the price as police officers. Our mm -hmm. officers are paying the price for societal failures for, for I don't want to point the finger at you two. You're great. Uh, but, but for policy failures, yes. and you talked about cops in schools. Mm -hmm. Hey, I'm only 52. I rem when I was young, and, and I'm an immigrant, English is my second language, I don't remember seeing the dropout rates involving people of color like we see today. And I, and I will say this till my face turns blue and purple. There's a, I think there's a direct correlation between the introduction of law, uh, law enforcement in, in, the, yes. in, in schools yes. And, 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 and the dropout rate. The more okay. cops we've been putting in schools over the years, I believe it's impacted the dropout rate. And this is why. More when I was a kid, if I popped you in the nose, you mentioned my mom, and this happened my freshman year, some guy, Richard Contero, mentioned my mom. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got, is he here? now you know why I want to do psychological testing, right? So uh, to the <laughs> well, I mean, he mentioned my mom, and I punched him in the nose right in the classroom. <laughs> The sad truth is that that's called adolescent behavior. It's called growing up. It's called, it's called. That's called uh, bullying you know, today. Well, no, no, I just punched him once. I didn't punch him twice. It only took one punch. Um, <clears throat> but today, that same punch in too many inner city schools, in too many schools, that turns into a criminal summons. We have, we cannot criminalize yeah. childhood. We cannot criminalize adolescence. We've got to look at that issue. That's great, everybody's clapping, but nobody's looking at it to that's the extent. Right. Cops should only be in schools for one thing and one thing only, and that's to keep people safe. Not to take the not to take the job of the administrator, of the counselor, of the principal, of the teacher, and a cop should not be called into a classroom to remove a kid that's in distress. That's, that's not right. what we do. That's right. That should be the school counselor or a school psychologist, and then you don't leave the kids there while the cop comes in. Empty the classroom out. Well, I have another one for okay. you. Now, th th this is, in Texas law, one it's of the crazy. punishments for truancy is out-of-school suspension. And I was in San Antonio, and they said they're actually doing that. They're suspending kids because they're truant. I'm like, the punishment is the same as a crime. <laughs> they need to get them back in school. Well, I mean, and, and if you look at the numbers, if you just look at the numbers, going back to the numbers, when you have the, the disciplinary invo yes. in, involvement of police, et cetera, et cetera, you begin to look at the correlation between those kids involved in some disciplinary activity in school, and then look at the juvenile justice system, whether they end up going to the juvenile justice system, and then they end up going to the adult justice system, and needless to say, there is that school to prison pipeline. Pipeline. Yep. pipeline. And then you begin to, but you look at the numbers, going back to the numbers, who's overrepresented mm -hmm. in each one of those particular categories? Not only starting in 2015, but if you go back 50 years, mm -hmm. you still see the same trend. And then we have policymakers and others talking about we need to do something about the problem. Well, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, and there's a lot of young people that are sick and tired of being sick and tired also. <laughs> and, now, and, uh, and, and from I'm a, sorry, okay, you don't want to get to the questions. We're, yeah, okay. we're, we're gonna have to get to questions, but okay. I do not wanna not bring this up, and I need concise answers okay. on this one. <laughs> That's for me. And That's I'm gonna me. go down the row. 
And I want to answer this question, do black lives matter? Yes. <laughs> I, 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 will, I will say this, not only do black lives matter, we, we've actually had press conferences with black lives matter, and I won't say the name of the official, but I was asked at a press conference uh, a comment after Dallas where a member of our esteemed legislature said that Black Lives Matter was kind of the cause of the Dallas which tragedy. Was all, which was and my response to that was shame on that person. Be and then I asked, about, have you even bothered? talking about the lieutenant governor. I didn't say it, you did. Well, um, <laughs> because black lives do matter and, and just like, there's, are there some fringe elements of Black Lives Matter? Yes. Absolutely, absolutely, but guess what? The vast majority of the people that are uh, supporting Black Lives Matter have real grievances and are law-abiding Americans that have the, the same rights to the respect everybody else does. And so, yes, they do, and I stand with Black and, Lives and, Matter. And let, me, that, and let me say this. Let me say this. When you begin to look at the NAACP, okay? And this is just a history lesson, all right? <laughs> you go back when the NAACP was in its heyday, so to speak, and was kind of pushing the envelope. Okay? They received, that organization and individuals in that organization received just as much and more criticism than Black Lives Matter. Needless to say, Black Lives Matter is obviously, we have social media and everything like that, but the same types of criticism, criticisms were heralded at the NAACP. And so the organization, I, I concur with the chief, there may very well be some fringes, and that's exactly right. But the core message is real clear and it's resonating with all Americans. And so for those persons that attempt to demonize the organization because of a few radical fringe groups, shame on them. And they should sit down and talk with those persons. I can assure you that I'm inviting that organization and its membership to be a part of the conversation this next legislative session. Because they need to be involved in the conversation because we don't have that perspective, then we're not going to be able to try to solve this, uh, this gap this equality gap that is, uh, we have in, with the criminal justice system. So those, those were close to being concise, but... Uh, <laughs> are, you, are you asking a, a question in a sentence, or are, you, or are you saying capital B, capital M, cap, capital L, capital M? What? 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 Both. Both. Um, obviously, all lives matter, and therefore, black lives matter. Okay, thank you. I agree with, with, with that, and, and here's the thing, I mean, when you saw the Terrence Crutcher, the guy in Oklahoma, this officer in the helicopter said, that looks like a bad man. Well, you know, I've been pulled over for, for getting a big bad dude. Well, I mean, I've been pulled over for speeding, and I don't think any officer said that looks like a big bad dude, right? So, I mean, there is something there, and I mean, you know, there are cases, there was a mentally ill man shot in West Virginia, a white guy, by an officer, um, and that was after a previous officer officer came out and, and didn't shoot him, and the officer that didn't shoot ended up getting fired. So there's, uh, this is a problem of uh, this use of force issue, uh, but it does, um, there are disproportionately, you know, whatever you believe, but whether it's 40% or whatever, uh, because African Americans are arrested more often for no other reason, they tend to bear more of the brunt of these uh, incidents. But I do agree also with Art that each incident, you have to look at the specific circumstances to determine whether it's justified or not. But I'd like to have fewer shootings uh, of all times. So. Thank y'all. I want to... Yeah. You gonna let this nice lady... Go ahead. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Really, I'm not sure if my mic is working. Is it? Um, isn't it? Isn't it sad that we still have to ask this question? Yes. Isn't that sad? Black Lives Matter. Yeah. <laughs> I want to thank y'all. And I have a question right here to this young woman. Right here. Yes. Hello, um, my name is Mercedes Munoz. I'm from El Paso, Texas, out of Coronado High School. And um, Representative White, you stated that a large part of fixing the problem is passing bills and legislation. But as a young Latina who is not yet able to pass legislation and protect myself from police brutality, what do I have to do to protect myself in today's society? Okay. Um, this may not be the answer you want to hear, but I've been wanting to say this, all right? Uh, first of all, everyone needs to respect the Constitution and the law. That includes the law enforcement, because you're under the law as well. Presidential candidates. Yes, presidential candidates, <laughs> okay? Everybody needs to do that. Everybody, we need to have a revival in a respect of the law and the Constitution. 
And that means even James White, as a state representative, maybe with an SO tag on my vehicle, if I'm pulled over, my first thing to do is to comply. And as I tell all of my constituents, if you have a problem with any law enforcement, you can bring it to me and I'll get it to the right place. But please, uh, adjudication, debating, and all of that is not on the side of the road on YouTube. You know, comply and get it back to the appropriate folks. No, I, I think it's comply and complain. Comply and complain. Okay. I do both, comply and complain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so right here against the wall and then right here in the middle, is that a pink, peach, teal? Okay, okay. <laughs> yes, <clears throat> so, um, and I'd like to start with Shakira, please. Um, so my question is, you know, it, 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 I love what we're doing in Austin. And to me, it seems like this is a national issue. Um, because if we're doing everything great in Austin, but something happens in another city, it raises everyone's fear, everyone's despair. We're in a national cultural conversation, right? And I appreciate very much what, how um, personally and in my community and in in our conversations, how Black Lives Matter, that movement, has made me and everyone I know way more aware of how much of two Americas we live in, at least two. And, um, but, you know, because as a white woman, I've never had that experience. I never had a fearful experience with an officer. That's interesting, right? But my question is, it seems to me that one of the, that I'm asking, do you agree and what would you do about it? It seems to me that what's really missing is national leadership in addressing the areas point by point by point um, where it's not working. Like a national oversight for dealing with the areas where it's not working and communicating to the national public that that is happening seems to be missing because I'm not hearing it. Now, I, maybe I'm listening to the wrong channels, but I'm not hearing that that's happening and I'm not getting updates that that's happening. And I'd like to know that that's happening. So A, is it happening and I just don't know? And B, if it's not happening, where should that happen? What entity should take that on? Um, I think Senator West is probably going to be better suited to answer the question, but I will say this. I, I did hear recently that the Congressional Black Caucus uh, was working on a task force uh, much like what you're talking about to head up this issue. And um, more than that, the data that we've been looking at has come from 53 different jurisdictions all over the United States. And so they recognize that it is a, it is a national problem and that Texas is actually somewhere in the middle when we were talking about the search and seizure practices, um, panning out that it's uh, more likely that an African American would uh, be searched than not. Um, one thing, I, I, I wanted to say this earlier, and it doesn't really fit right here, but I wanted to get it in there. One thing that they found out on top of that, though, that was kind of disturbing was that, and after that search ensues, the uh, likelihood that contraband is found on an African American or Latino person was less than. And I think that says something about the very suspicion that is there to begin with, that something was flawed to begin with, right, in that practice. So say all that to say, I think things are being done nationally because the research is being done nationally, and I think uh, Senator West can speak more to what's going well, on. Well, and this, there's a second part of the question, which is who's informing the public about that so the predominant message isn't just one that the media controls, a fear-based message. You know, I mean, I appreciate the Black Lives Matter message, but there's this other media message that's amping up fear. I think that's a great question that I'm not sure that I have the answer for. Well, I think Congresswoman uh, Sheila Jackson Lee out of Houston actually has some legislation that uh, was at a hearing in uh, Congress on Tuesday, and she's got some legislation at the national level dealing with police legitimacy, uh, and uh, you should keep an eye on that. You can probably contact her office. That's all. So our, our people, we our panelists are going to are around for a little bit. So if y'all want to go ahead and ask any questions. Thank you.